Psalm chapter 32, we're going to be here this morning in our Psalms of Summer series. Last week, Justin looked at Psalm chapter 19 and, uh, and just the, the idea that God has generally revealed himself through creation, but God has specifically revealed himself through the word. We know who God is through creation. God's given us the gifts of creation and conscience, but God has given us his word that we might know him. I want us to go to Psalm 32 this morning. The title of the message is The Righteous Response to Sin. The Righteous Response to Sin. And the reason I want us to go here this morning, um, I was preaching a camp up in Tennessee this week. Appreciate you guys praying. And and, uh, I'll be in and out throughout the summer with different preaching opportunities. But I ran across this psalm and I, I thought it, it, it was a proper place for us to think through God's faithfulness. And what have we sung about this morning? Faithfulness of God, right? And so as we go to Psalm 32, I, I want us to think about this, that the faithfulness of God is not just faithfulness on the greatest days of our life. God's faithfulness is seen in the absolute worst days of our life. And God's faithfulness is seen, not just in the worst days of our life, I would say that God's faithfulness is seen in the worst self-caused days of our life. So no matter where the child of God, the born-again, regenerate, adopted, reconciled, justified child of God, no matter where they find themselves, through being hurt by other people, or by just blowing up their life through actions of their own, One thing we see is the faithfulness of God. Psalm 32 is one of what we would call seven psalms of repentance. Psalm chapter chapter 6, Psalm chapter 38, Psalm chapter 51, Psalm chapter 102, 103, and 143 are all psalms of repentance. Psalm 32 is closely connected to Psalm 51, and most scholars think that this is probably a psalm that was written after Psalm 51, talking about the really worst day of David's life, or the worst season of David's life. If you remember, 2 Samuel tells us that in the height of his kingship, he was not fighting with his troops. He stayed at home when he should have been out fighting his troops. He rose from an afternoon nap. He walks out on a balcony overlooking the city. He sees a woman bathing, not just any woman. The scripture says she was a beautiful woman. He looked upon her. He lusted. Turns out she was actually like one of the wife of one of his like best soldiers. And David commits adultery with her. And there's a child that is born. And David covers it up by getting her husband murdered on the battlefield. And when you start Understanding the context of this psalm, man, two things really on the backdrop, how jacked up we are as people and how deep even as believers we can go into the mire of sin and yet how faithful God is to remain with us and to bring us to repentance. But if you'll notice Psalm chapter 32, even before we get to verse one, there's a statement that's mentioned or a a musical term that's mentioned, a mascal of David. What is a mascal? It kind of sounds like a piece of armor or something, not a musical term. Uh, A mascal, there's 13 psalms that are called mascals. And the the best way to interpret that, some of these these liturgical terms or, or musical terms, we don't have exactly what they are. But when you look at the 13 different psalms that are called mascals, what, what they are 
is a psalm that causes you to meditate, to contemplate, to sit and think for the purposes of teaching wisdom. Specifically in this psalm, the wisdom that is imparted is how do we as believers respond to the sin in our life? And so what he's going to do is he's going to talk about our different relationship with sin. Some facts. You're going to see some facts early on in this psalm. And then he's going to go to like life experience where sometimes we don't feel in our experience the facts that are true. And then he's going to emerge from that and we're going to end on how no matter what the facts are, even though they're true, even though sometimes our experience, we have a hard time believing the facts, when we press through and take God at his word, we experience God's promises in reality in our life. So, so keep that frame, that, that framework in your mind as we walk through the psalm this morning. Facts, experience, promises. Let's read it together. Psalm chapter 32. The Maskell of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer to you prayer to time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Apart from one mention in verse 10 of the wicked, this entire psalm is about the righteous. It's about what's true for the righteous, facts. It's about the experience of the righteous, what they face in reality in their life. But it ends with specific promises, check this out, that are only applied to the righteous. We have a problem in our day when we sometimes take the promises that are only meant for the people of God and we kind of copy and paste them onto the world. Let me just tell you this. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no hope for those who reject the truth of God. The only hope, the only peace are for those who know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who know God through the Lord Jesus Christ know God They have access to God, and all the promises of God apply to them because of Christ. So David starts this psalm, big truth number one I want you to see this morning, is that the righteous have a different relationship with sin. The righteous have a different relationship with sin. David starts off, and he names several things that are true. Now, before we walk through those, 
I want you to understand that all of us born into this world have one relationship with sin. The Bible says we're dead in sin. That means that like we, don't, we aren't connected to God. We're cut off from God. We're born dead in our depravity. 100% of the people that are born are separated from God. We're dead in sin. The Bible says we're blind. We're blinded by sin. Not just that we don't see spiritual things. The Bible says our minds are blind. We can't even comprehend spiritual things. The Bible says we're enslaved to sin. Jesus said that. If anyone commits sin, he's a slave to sin. So we're not just dead in sin. We're blinded by sin. We're entrapped and locked up in sin. Do we have a free will? Yeah, our will is free only to sin. We're completely sinful. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not trying to hurt your ego. That is just simply a statement of Scripture that there is no one good, no, not one. All have turned aside. And it is on that backdrop of how jacked up we are as people that the light of the gospel shines. That for those that are dead in sin, guess what God does? He makes them alive in Christ. To those who are blinded by sin, he opens their eyes. To those who are entrapped by sin, he sets them free into newness of life. This is why the power of God, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Salvation is not just you getting a bus ticket to go to heaven. It's spiritual life, spiritual freedom, spiritual newness in every shape and form. And we know from the scriptures that when someone is born again, they're transferred out of one relationship to sin into another relationship to sin. Before our conversion, we didn't even realize it. We're, because of sin, we're dead. Because of sin, we're blind. Because of sin, we're entrapped. But, yeah, we, but we love sin. Isn't that crazy? The thing that is killing us, we take pleasure in. But when we're converted and our eyes are opened and our spirits are made alive, and we're set free, guess what? Our relationship with sin changes, and it changes in this way. We cannot continue to enjoy sin and treasure sin as we did before because God has imparted to us his life, which causes us to view sin differently. Now, again, I'm not talking about real life Monday morning yet, okay? I'm dealing with gospel truth, that those who are born again, their relationship has changed. Now, David lists three different ways that our relationship has changed in verse one through two. Notice both verses start with the word blessed. When referred to people, this means happy, this means favored, this means enjoying something, a, a condition, a privilege. And notice what he says. He says, the blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven those whose sin is covered, those whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, what's very incredible here is that David, in two verses, used three words to describe sin. He's not talking about different types of sin, that some sin is classified as transgression and other is some sin is sin and some sin is iniquity. No, what he's doing is he's giving us three different angles on the nature of sin. Now, this is important. When the Bible calls sin transgression, the Hebrew word there literally means rebellion or disloyalty. What it means is, is that God has said something and I've rebelled against it. God has held out his hand and I've stuck a middle finger in his face. God has said, do this, and I say, no, I'm doing this. And in doing so, I have shown my allegiance not to be with God, but to be with sin and myself. That's transgression. 
But he also says whose sin is covered. The Hebrew word for sin literally means failure. We, we know the New Testament Greek term literally means like to miss the mark. God has said to do something and we miss his will. We don't do his will. That's the idea of the word sin here. But he also says the word in verse two, iniquity. The word iniquity in the Hebrew describes the, the perverse, like wicked nature of sin. When, when we perceive something that we know is of affront to God and our, you know, we just kind of get queasy over it. Some of the things we see in our culture right now, it, it, just, it just makes us almost want to like vomit in a holy way. You know what I'm talking about? Just when we do that, y'all, let's remember that the deep sin in our life should provoke us to feel the same way as when we see it in somebody else's life, right? Good mark of sanctification. And so he's given us a three, like a triangled, triangulated view of sin. It's rebellion, it's missing God's will, and it's wicked, it's, it's perverse. But you know what? For the righteous, our, our, our relationship has been changed. How? First and foremost, the righteous transgressions have been forgiven. How's our relationship changed? For the righteous, for those of us that know him, our transgression has been forgiven. So all of the rebellion, all of the disloyalty, all the times that I have chosen myself in sin over God, and I've looked at God and say, no, God, I'm going to do my own thing. The Bible says the blessed one, the righteous one, all of the guilt and shame that should come upon someone has been removed. The burden of rebelling against God has been taken away. Wow. Our relationship with sin has changed in the fact that God has removed and taken away our burden of rebelling against him. Secondly, he says that the righteous, their sin is atoned for and silenced. All the times that we have chosen our will over God's will and we have missed God's will and all those voices are shouting and screaming, this one that loves their will over God's will, that sin has been covered. It has been silenced. It's like the idea of, of the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know much about the Ark of the Covenant, it was one of the main ways in Israel it gave them a perception of God's presence. It gave them a picture of God's, uh, of God's nature. And it was the central feature of the sacrificial system. One day a year, the high priest would enter into the back of the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness or the temple after it was constructed. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were a few things, but mainly it was the Ten Commandments. It was the law. It was the, the Ten Commands that God had said, live this way. Four vertical, six horizontal. And once a year, the high priest would enter in with sacrificial blood and the cover of the Ark of the Covenant that was the top of it, blood was sprinkled. And they called that, that was the atonement. That was how sin was atoned for. And it's this picture. 
all of us have broken the law. Every single Israelite had broken the law, not just like three years ago, but in this calendar year. And so what happens is that law that we have broken has cried out and cried out and cried out. But what happens is because atonement is made, the lid shuts down on those cries and the blood is sprinkled. And guess what? The claim for sin is silenced. Gospel truth here, right? The, the blessed are the ones that God doesn't bring up the baggage of failure and sin. You know why? Because it's under the blood of Jesus. I'm so thankful that I have a different relationship with sin. That my past can't separate me from God because Jesus died in my place for my sin. And if you know him this morning, it's true for you also. There's a third way that our relationship with sin has changed. And he says that their iniquity is no longer counted to them. So the wickedness, the perverseness, the perversion, the wicked nature of what we've indulged in is no longer held over our head. Now, it's not just that. Look at what he says. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's not just that the Lord doesn't count some iniquity, but perverseness is not counted towards you anymore. What if I commit it as a Christian? Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter four. Just just write this down. Go back and read it later. Do an Irish jig in your house when you read it because it should get you crunk, okay? And this is what it says. Romans chapter four, verse four through 12. It talks about if you want to work for your own righteousness, guess what? You'll get payment. The problem is you don't have righteousness. I don't have righteousness. And we try to live in a righteous way. Guess what? We fall short and guess what? We're condemned. And so Paul's whole point of using this psalm is to illustrate that you and I can stand before God, declared righteous through no work of our own, but because Jesus worked in our behalf. He lived a perfect life that I didn't live. He died a sacrificial death, I should have died. And if I would have died that sacrificial death, I'd have stayed in the grave and I'd have gone straight to hell. But the son of God who lived a perfect life laid down his life and God honored that sacrifice and declared that sacrifice three days later by rising him from the dead. Anyone who believes in him, all of his righteousness will go to your account. Your bankruptcy will be filled with the glorious righteousness of Jesus. And so you know why God doesn't take us out when we sin? A small sin, a big sin, is because I have standing before God, not on the basis of myself. I have standing before God because someone lived and died in my place. Justin has said it here before. Let me say it again. The glory of imputed righteousness is that God now treats me as if I live Jesus' life because he treated Jesus like he lived my life. Man, what grace. And this is facts. No matter whether you believe it, or, or I should say, no matter whether you feel it, it's true for those that know Christ. If you've been brought to a place of recognizing your own sinfulness, and by God's grace you've repented and believed the gospel, and your life has been made new, and your, your heart's changed, and you're, this is true of you, your sin is forgiven, your transgression is forgiven, your sin is covered, And God treats you now based off the righteousness of Jesus. 
This is truth. But then David goes into like real life experience. (laughs) And what is real life experience? Verse three. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. What is the reality of our life? Big truth number two this morning. The righteous still face sin and must respond to it. If you'll go back to the end of verse two, notice what he says. Blessed is the man in in whose spirit there is no deceit. Many times we can view ourselves as being greater than what we are. These gospel truths are true in our life, yet here's the reality. You and I live in the now and not yet. We have been saved, but we are being saved. We will be totally saved, but right now we're being sanctified. We will be glorified. We have been justified, but right now we are being sanctified. If we were to die, we would die in Christ. We would not be judged in hell because we've been justified, because we've been saved from the penalty of sin. But right now, guess what? If you don't give my Southern uh, Miss pitcher a wide strike zone, I get frustrated at you. We were watching a baseball game yesterday. Lauren leaned over and she said, uh, Luke, they made an announcement at the beginning of the, of the uh, game that the student athletes should be the ones that decide the game, not the umpire or the fans yelling at the umpire. I tried to simmer down after that. But the reality of the Christian life is that sin is something that has been overcome in Jesus, and yet, guess what? Reality, day to day, we still find ourselves fighting, struggling, and trying to overcome sin. That's why David begins the psalm with bedrock foundational truth, because if you only start and end with your experience, you will be depressed, and you will go away thinking that overcoming and victory is impossible. But our struggle against sin is built off what Jesus has already done with our sin. And so what David's talking about in three and four, I still sin. And whether he's looking back on the adultery with Bathsheba, or whether he's just talking about a rough day that he had, this is the reality of sin. We still face it. We still fight it. We still struggle with it. Many people have taken 1 John chapter 3 that anyone born of God doesn't practice sin. I was sitting in one time, I was sitting in a, a pastor's office of a, and this dude believed in like sinless perfection. And he told me like in 17 years that he had never sinned. I'll be like, dude, you're doing it like right now. And, and people that quote 1 John 3 forget that in 1 John 1, he said, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. We still face sin and we must respond to it. I want you to see under this, in these verses first, that the Spirit responds to our present sin and loving conviction. I don't know if you've ever experienced Psalm 32, 3 and 4, but it's not pleasant. You do something stupid, whatever it is, and it's transgression, it's sin, and it's iniquity. And there's probably like, like guilt that comes and shame that comes, but then there's something deeper, and it's the weight of the holy thumb, right? Now, I know, I know Holy Spirit, he doesn't have like opposable thumbs. I get that, okay? 
I get that. I'm not trying to ascribe a body to the Holy Spirit. But this is, it, what I'm getting at is the divine weight of conviction upon us, right? And it's almost as if the Holy Spirit comes and, you know, praise God that he doesn't squash us, amen? He doesn't like just come, ah, he'll, he'll come and he'll say, let's talk about that. And immediately what comes to our mind and our soul? A word we said, <laughs> thoughts we're having, actions we did, attitudes. You know, it, it seems as if as you grow in grace, the Holy Spirit is not just concerned about the things you do, he's concerned about why you do the things that you do, right? It's not just what we do, it's the motives, the motivation of our hearts and the divine weight of the holy thumb of conviction and the Spirit says, let's talk about that. And you know what David is saying in verse three and four? Holy Spirit, I don't wanna talk about that. You ever been there? Something's brought up in your heart. Sin's brought up in your heart. You know it's sin. You'd be like, I'm just going to turn to the wall and stare, and hopefully he'll go away. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. David is saying it's almost as if somebody took a, a spiritual syringe, stuck it in my arm, and slowly started sucking the life out of me. Why is it? because I do not want to own up to my sin. And the Spirit, in a very, check this out, loving way, is making me miserable. You ever been there? You ever felt that? Now, why is this loving conviction? The best doctors in the world don't blow smoke up your nose and tell you everything's going to be okay. The best doctors in the world tell you exactly what's wrong with you and how they're going to fix it. Right? The Spirit doesn't come to you and say, hey, it's, you're awesome and have a great day. Hey, Luke, let's talk about that attitude. Hey, Luke, let's talk about when you popped off to that person. Hey, Luke, let's talk about your motivation of self-righteousness. Hey, let, let's talk about what you said there. Let's deal with that lustful thought. Let, let's deal with this. Let's deal with that. I don't want to talk about that. Because he's God, the Holy Spirit is eternally patient. I think it was Oswald Chambers that said, the Holy Spirit will spend the, the rest of our life teaching us one lesson if that's how stubborn we choose to be. I mean, he, he didn't even wear to go. He's, he's ruling creation. He's God. He's gonna be with us forever. All right? I got all day. I got all eternity. Verse four, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. It is because the Spirit of God loves you that he will not allow you to get away with sin in your life. He confronts our sin because he cares for us. We see secondly that our, our role, our job, is to respond in honest confession and repentance. Look in verse 5. I acknowledged, there's an English word that starts with an M and ends with a Y. Whose sin? My sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess 
my transgressions to the Lord. Isn't it interesting? He uses the same words. One and two, he talks about transgression, sin, and iniquity. Here in verse five, he calls it my transgression, my sin, my iniquity. And you know what David is saying? He's saying, God, you are right. Spirit, you are not only right to convict me of this, but spirit, I am guilty of this. There's not, not like a passing of the buck. I read it, I think it was this week or last week. When, when God came and convicted David, David didn't say, well, God, what about Saul? What about Bathsheba? She shouldn't have been out there. What about the Philistines? What about this person and that person? No, in this point... He's not trying to pass the the buck or pass blame. He's confessing his sin. He's admitting his sin. He's taking ownership of his sin. I I recently read about a pastor's tragic situation. I mean, sinful situation. Basically was in an emotional affair. It didn't get to the point of physical, and this is what he said. This was his excuse. He's like, well, it was consensual. No matter if it's consensual or not, it's sin. And I'm looking at my life, and I'm sure you look at your life, how often we want to justify ourselves by comparing it to someone else. You know what we need to remind ourselves? No matter what our sin is, no matter how tough our sin is, our sin hit God ever before it hit anybody else. And all sin is the same before God. And the quickest way, the righteous response to sin, is to own up, don't pass the buck, and say, Lord, I acknowledge my sin. I won't cover up my iniquity. I will confess my transgression. And y'all, look at the end of verse five. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. I love the fact that he uses iniquity there because of three words, iniquity almost is like the most fierce. It's the vileness, it's the wickedness, it's the, it's the depraved nature of it. And he says, he went to the deepest part of my wickedness and he covered it. That's gospel. That's true. He responds in confession and repentance. And it's almost like he asked himself, what was I waiting for? What, what was I, what, 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 like, like God was going to do something really nasty to me when I acknowledge my sin. And what he finds out is, no. All God was waiting for me is to own up to my sin. And that brings us to something else I want you to see here, is that rightly responding to sin clears and corrects our vision. You know why we don't respond to sin the right way? Because at that moment, we're in a fog. Sin's controlling our thinking. But man, when the light of truth comes in, what does light always do to fog? Eventually, what does it do? It dissipates it, right? It clears it up. Notice what he says in verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me. You surround me. All this stuff that's not coming to his mind early on when he's like, ah, I just, I don't want to talk about it. It just like rushes his soul. I wrote this down. When we respond to sin in the right way, we, we rightly see our need to confess. We see the benefit in confessing. We see that God has made himself available to us to confess. We see God as 
who he truly is. And what David is saying is, when I confess my sin, again it came to my heart that God is not someone that I should run from when I sin. God is someone that I should run to when I sin. You see how repentance clears up the fogginess in our hearts? This is what he's saying. And he's looking around, he's like, man, if you're contemplating whether running from God or running to God, run to him because he forgave the depths of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer you at a time when you may be found. This great God whom we've sinned against is the one that comes and knocks. Hey, let's talk about this so that we might be reconciled to him. So, so what are we seeing so far? We're, we're seeing the, the fact that the believer has a different relationship with sin, and, and we're seeing that when we sin, God comes to us, even though we've offended him, he comes to us and convicts us because he wants us to be back in relationship with him. It's not the fact that I've lost my salvation. Like, like I, I, I started losing my ring a lot, so I got these things off Amazon. They're incredible, okay? And, and with Lauren's permission, okay? So, so like my, my, my real ring is like locked away somewhere. So, so when I put this on, this symbolized the fact that I entered into a marriage relationship with one woman for the rest of my life, okay? At the time, I had no idea what it meant. Next month, 16 years later, I'm still, she's like way ahead of me in knowing what this means. I'm, I'm trying to catch up, right? When, when we have an argument, because I hope you know this, pastors have arguments with their wives, okay? And all the pastor's wives said, man, we better, we got to talk to, I think everybody, I think, spread out. Shauna, you didn't say anything, come on. Uh, you said amen, all right, good. There we go, all right. Because we do it, because we do it. Um, when we get in an argument with our wife, the, the ring doesn't come off and, it, and we become unmarried, Right? There's not, a, there's not a disruption in standing. There's a disruption in fellowship, right? My father-in-law says that, you know, how, how many years have they been married? 50? Something like that. 49, 51, around there. We'll say 50 years. But my father-in-law says in 50 years, I've never had a fight. I've just had moments of intense fellowship, right? So there, <laughs> you, you don't become unmarried, but what happens is there's a disruption in the fellowship. That's what David's saying. As a righteous person, when you sin, you don't become unrighteous. But the fellowship's broken. And if you'll just get your vision corrected, man, you got to understand that he's not up there holding grudges. He's saying, let's restore the fellowship. On what basis? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son. And what's awesome in this psalm here is that when you pair it with Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is just a one-way street. It's just David saying, I sinned, I messed up, please restore everything. Check this out. In Psalm 32, we have something very unique because verse eight, in the midst of David teaching us about facts and personal experience, somebody else enters the conversation. Who is it? It's God. Psalm 32 is unique in this way. It's one of the repentant Psalms that God speaks right dab in the middle of it. So he's saying, I Confess my sin, you're a hiding place for me, my vision's been corrected, and then the divine voice speaks in verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Check this out, isn't this so awesome? That when we confess our sin and the fellowship's been restored, the first two words out of God's mouth are I will. Not I might, not there's a chance, not that show me more 
of how you're going to respond before I'll show you more faithfulness coming straight from God is I will. Because that's the kind of God he is. He says this. He enters the conversation. He speaks. Last big truth, and we'll move through this pretty quick. The righteous experience God's faithfulness. Facts, experience, promises. And what are the promises? First, he's committed to teach us and to stay with us. That's what he says in verse 8. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you in the way you should go. I'm going to counsel you with my eye upon you. God says, I'm looking at you. I'm watching you. I'm seeing where you'll go. And guess this? Here's the promise. You're going to go off track again. And guess what? I'm going to teach you and I'm going to instruct you and I'm going to pull you back. God lets his children run, but he doesn't let them run that far. He comes and gets them. Because this is his promise. Are you thankful that God comes after you? Are you thankful that God saves you? Even if you're caught in sin, guess what? Glory to his name. He allows us to be caught that we might be caught back to him. Amen? Glory. Glory, glory, glory. So then God says, the, he speaks in two verses, verse 8 and verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay with you. This is Jones County language. Don't be stubborn. Don't make God like chain you to himself. I wrote this down. May, may our lives grow more and more to be a joy to the Holy Spirit, not a grief to him. Right? That Johnson knucklehead. Got to tie that cat down, right? I'm not suggesting that's how the Holy Spirit speaks. I, I, I do think the verses, the, the exhortation here is of your own freedom given to you by Christ Remain in him. Abide in him. See the importance of not running off into sin. See the importance of remaining close. Don't be a horse or a mule. Be a son and a daughter of God that enjoys the fellowship of their father. What this means is that our lives should reflect his faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness to us, we should reflect faithfulness in our life. The last two verses, David sums up, and this is what he says. He contrasts the wicked and the righteous. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And then he exhorts us, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The contrast here is that the wicked have no hope, but the righteous are never without hope. God has conquered the sin in your life. Ultimately in Christ. But progressively in your life, is there anything that can conquer you? Ultimately? No. Is sin beating you up right now? Believe that he's already conquered that sin in Christ and submit to his work in your life right now so that you can have victory. The battle, the, the war's been, been won. And we're fighting not for victory, we're fighting from victory. 
But the wicked, they don't have hope. Many are their sorrows. Do the righteous experience sorrows? Yes, in this life, yes. Even in the midst of this, David had one of his sons that died because of his sin, because of David's sin. But David is saying, this is what sustains me, the faithfulness of God, the love of God, that God doesn't treat me as my sins deserved. And for us, this morning we celebrate that he does not treat us as our sins deserve because he treated his son as his son did not deserve to be treated. And so here's the thing this morning. If you're in sin this morning as a Christian, guess what? Seek him while he may be found. Through the word this morning, he's, he's offering, he's coming to you. And he's like, be reconciled. Confess your sin. Call it what it is. I'm not going to beat you down when you come home. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to embrace you because my son has borne the punishment for that sin. If you don't know Christ this morning, can I just tell you that for the wicked, there is no hope. But while you're alive this morning, there is an offer of hope through the gospel. You can repent of your sin. You can believe the gospel and you can be made from unrighteous to righteous. Not by trying to do a checklist but look into the one who did it all, Jesus Christ. So as we continue to sing and think on the faithfulness of God, one of the greatest displays is how he deals with our sin and how he reaches out to us when we sin and how he's working in us victory over sin because one day, praise God, we'll be totally, completely freed from sin. This is our hope. This is the word. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. I see living in the now and not yet how I know I'm forgiven. I know my sin's covered. I know you don't count sin to my account anymore because of Christ. And yet, Lord, we can just be stubborn and like a horse and a mule thankful for your faithfulness and I pray for the church this morning I pray for every believer that because of who you've made us that we'll respond rightly to sin that it won't have place in our life that you'll continue to sanctify us we'll cooperate with that we we won't deceive ourselves Lord, I pray for those in this place that don't know Jesus. Reveal to them their unrighteousness, and yet through Christ, how their sin can be ultimately and finally dealt with. Church, as we sit before the Lord this morning, how is he speaking to you, and how has he spoken to you through the scriptures? Perhaps there is sin in your life, believer. Confess it. What are you waiting for? If you don't know Christ, what are you waiting for? Turn to him. Justin and Ryan will be at the back as we sing. I'll be available back there too. If you'd like a pastor to talk to you this morning, to counsel you, to pray with you for salvation or as a Christian, your struggles in your life and there's sin in your life, we'd love to to talk to you. There's also ladies, there's, there's godly women available that can counsel you as well. We love Jesus by obeying Jesus. 
So as we think through these truths, we're going to celebrate God's faithfulness, but give you the opportunity to respond to that faithfulness personally as well. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Work them in our heart and in our life that we may honor you, that we may reflect your faithfulness, God, as those who have experienced your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this together. Pray. Seek us out. If you need counseling, come on. Let's celebrate God's faithfulness.